Welcome to Manifold. My guest today is Raghu Parthasarathi. He is the Alec and K. Keith Professor of Physics at the University of Oregon. Professor Parthasarathi, who I will call Raghu, I think, because we are old friends, is a professor of biophysics, and he is the author of a new popular book published by Princeton University Press. The title of that book is So Simple a Beginning, How Four Physical Principles Shape Our Living World. Welcome to the podcast, Raghu. Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to have you on. People who are readers of my blog may know you from the comment section because uh, you occasionally comment on my blog. You have your own blog, which I will put a link to in the show notes. I've always enjoyed, I enjoyed having you as a colleague for many years before I moved from Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I really enjoyed our physics department at Oregon and I enjoyed almost essentially all of my colleagues there, but uh, there were a few colleagues I always felt were super insightful and uh, always missed having around for discussions. And you're certainly one of those people. Oh, thanks. Well, we, we, we miss you too. Thanks. So what I thought I would do is go through a little bit of your intellectual history. So what you were like as a kid, when you first decided to study physics, when did you first start to specialize in biophysics? Yeah. Yeah. This it, it's an interesting question. I mean, I'm, of course, biased since you know, I probably find my own history interesting. So I'm a biophysicist, so I look at things at the intersection like of biology and physics. And I think like a lot of biophysicists, I came to this by a, a very sort of meandering path. And in fact, like, you know, despite the fact that I probably talk more to biologists these days than to physicists, and I'm really, I'm really kind of at this edge, I actually never took biology in, in college or even high school. I think I think eighth grade was the last actual biology class I, I took, even though I'm now, you know, very much much immersed in this. And and that's not, you know, hugely atypical for biophysicists. But anyway, to be more precise, when I, when I was a kid, you know, I, I was always quite interested in, in science and math, but especially physical sciences. I was really into astronomy for a while and, and was very fond of math and like physics. And I think like a good fraction of us who end up being physicists, I had an extremely good high school physics class. And one of the things that was that was really great about it. It was very kind of rigorous, but we also, we did a lot of experiments, just actual, you know, hands-on things. And I remember distinctly one day being just blown away by, by something that seems, you know, really simple. We did an experiment. You have a ball rolling down a ramp, then it rolls along a table, goes off the edge of the table, and you have to predict where is it going to land? And you put a cup there and see if does the ball land on the cup. So, you know, very... In some sense, a very kind of elementary first-year physics kinematics exercise. But the fact that you could actually predict this and you put the cup there and the ball landed in the cup, I found just kind of mind-boggling that there's this actual power of, of quantitative prediction in the world. So, you know, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, but I, I was interested in, in math and physics and that kind of stuff. And I went to UC Berkeley as an undergrad. And actually, for the majority of my time, there was a, uh, a double major between physics and astrophysics. So, you know, very different from, from what I'm currently doing. And I had the good fortune of being involved in an undergraduate project in the astronomy department to build a radio telescope. So a bunch of us, we put a huge amount of work into, into this, met, you know, weekends and designed and built this, this big metal bucket that ended up on the roof of the astronomy building. And the thing actually worked. It detected 
the so-called 21 centimeter line. So these radio waves put out by uh, atomic hydrogen. You could point this up at the sky, detect this this um, hydrogen. You could even determine its velocity and figure out you know the speed at which the galaxy is rotating. It was it was a lot of fun. It was extremely educational, very hard, <laughs> uh, really stimulating. But I began to get more and more interested in the fact that okay, you could build this thing. It's just you know a meter wide or so. You can put it on your roof, and the total amount of this. Uh, radio wave energy at 21 centimeters that's hitting the entire surface of the Earth is about 100 watts. But you can build something that actually like detects that and turns it into a signal. So I got more interested in the the back end of the telescope than the things we were pointing at. You know, even though I, I do think the things we're pointing at were were interesting too. So you know, this still isn't biology. <laughs> um, I got more interested in kind of the the tangible in a way or materials the end of of physics and thinking, okay, what can we? build and, and sense and stuff like that. Sorry to, sorry to interrupt, but when you say the back end, do you mean you got involved, interested in the electronics of signal processing or the material? Right. So, yeah, no, I, I don't mean kind of in in detail the back end, like how exactly did the, the circuits work and so on, but more just the fact of kind of the broad sense of like materials. What are the kind of things that make this possible? How do we understand, you know, metals and semiconductors and and this kind of stuff, tangible stuff that you kind of work with. Mm-hmm. Does that help? It does. Actually, j- another, just a technical question before we uh, get into the more interesting stuff. So you you said 100 watts of energy in the 21 centimeter line is spread out over the whole surface of the earth? Is that what you- That's what I recall. I, I have to admit, it's been a while since I, I uh, looked up that statistic, probably when I was an undergrad, but that, that's what I recall, 100 watts for the whole yeah, you know, hitting hitting the surface of the of the earth. If that's true, then your your sensitivity is off the charts, right? Because you're getting yeah. Okay, I, I should I should I should be a little careful with the story to see if that's really uh, <laughs> really correct. Yeah, I, I don't I don't recall <laughs> enough to okay check you on whether that's true, but um, uh, we'll leave that as an exercise for your readers. Yes, they can exactly. put it in I, I'm a little embarrassed because when I was when I was doing astrophysics cosmology like stuff, I probably could have estimated that in the on the back of an envelope pretty quickly. But now right now and. A little bit at a loss, but okay. So this led you to be interested in properties of materials. Yeah. Oh, and I should point out, actually, even at the same time, kind of overlapping this, when I was an undergrad, I got involved in a research lab. This physics professor, Paul McEwen, is a wonderful person who's now at Cornell doing things with like nanostructures and nanoelectronics of various sorts. So I got a bit of a foot into, into the door of this, this end of physics as well. And so then I, I decided, you know, for grad school, I decided I wanted to go to grad school and continue in this sort of vein of you know, nanostructures, materials, as you know, the technical term, like condensed matter physics, stuff that's stuff, <laughs> how stuff works. And so uh, I ended up going to graduate school at the University of Chicago, which is a wonderful experience. And the bulk of what I did was, again, actually not uh, related to biology or, or biophysics. I actually worked on a bunch of different projects, but the thing that ended up being like my dissertation was on arrays of nanocrystals. So these little couple of nanometer wide, so a few billionths of a meter wide particles that are so small, it takes an appreciable amount of energy to put like just one more electron onto them. And so like electricity going through these things isn't like a, a sort of continuous sea of stuff, but almost like a, a granular flow of little electrons plinking one to the other and, and knocking off the next one and making the next one go and so on. So I worked on these sort of systems and 
here again, there's sort of two parts to it. And I began to get more interested in, in one aspect rather than the other. And the two parts in a way, one was these electronic properties and what could you do with them and why are they what they are and so on. But the other is something that actually comes up in, in my book a lot, a notion of self-assembly. So the way we would make the arrays of these little nanocrystals, these six, six nanometer wide little particles, is that we would make these in a liquid solution. So you have these particles or suspension technically, these little particles jiggling around in liquid, coated with, with some nice molecules that coat them on the surface. We put a drop of that liquid onto a surface that we, for example, patterned electrodes or something onto it. Then you just go get some coffee, come back half an hour later, and it's just assembled itself into this beautiful ordered array of nanocrystals in like a regular geometric lattice. So the thing puts itself together and there's this notion of self-assembly going on, that if you kind of understand the physical forces that drive interactions between stuff, you can have them build themselves into to things you might want. And you don't, you don't need to plant that kind of seed structure that the additional molecules or atoms accrete onto. It, it just naturally forms this lattice. Right, right. I mean, there are situations in which, yeah, you, you can plant a seed I and mean, that'll influence, you know, the further growth and so on. But there are plenty of situations like, in fact, the one we were dealing with where you don't have to, just the spontaneous, you know, so-called like lowest energy state is the ordered one that you actually want. Great. So I got really kind of mesmerized by this and because of this and just other just general reading and talking to people and going to seminars and stuff like that. And actually uh, one side project I had, had on getting protein fibers to organize themselves into structures and putting metals on them. I began to think, okay, the self-assembly thing is really, really pretty amazing. So that might be a good thing to look into as, as a postdoc. And where are the really amazing examples of self-assembled things? Well, it's in living stuff. So let me move, let me just make a big leap towards biophysics. So I took a leap, ended up in the chemistry department at UC Berkeley. So back at Berkeley, in a group looking at the biophysics of membranes, or basically the materials that make up cell membranes, and asking, you know, how do proteins organize themselves in these, these membranes? How do the constituents, you know, form themselves to structures and stuff like that? Well, that so that was, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt it. That was a bit of a jump, right? Because you're doing <laughs> solid state physics. I mean, you're looking at a yeah. irregular crystal structure and suddenly it sounded like for your postdoc, you not only jumped to the chemistry department, but you were doing soft condensed matter, i.e. membrane. Yes. So I'm just curious, was it because you applied, I mean, I guess you had to apply to that group after Right. Okay. In your last year of graduate school. And so there must've been something in your head that just said, well, I'm, I'm going to cast my net widely. And there are lots of different systems that I'm interested in studying. Is that, is that how it happened or? That, that, yeah, that, that's definitely part of it. So yeah, I, I did decide to cast my net widely. Um, I had some personal constraints or influences of wanting to be in the Bay area actually, but, but at least scientifically I did cast my net somewhat widely, but also, you know, even though my own background wasn't exactly in this area. Like I was hinting at at the beginning, this isn't that uncommon in biophysics. You know, there aren't a lot of people who have exactly, you know, a tailor-made background to exactly the thing they end up studying. And in fact, even if they do, it may not be a benefit to really have that. You know, often, you know, very wide perspectives are good. So I was really saying, okay, I've, I've developed these skills, these sort of general skills of doing experiments, analyzing stuff, coming up with experiments, stuff like that. Are you guys willing to take a chance on me and uh, uh, and go for it? I think it also helped that the group I joined was a quite new one. And so they were 
interested in people and willing to take risks. This was Jay Groves, who's in, who continues to be in the chemistry department at UC Berkeley. I see. Now, in my experience, when physicists, who, well, people who are not originally in biophysics somehow migrate over to biophysics, there's some kind of background learning that either they already did and it motivated them to make the switch, or they then have to quickly do it. And Oh, yes, definitely. And they go back and they read Schrodinger's book, What is Life?, and start thinking about all kinds, maybe, maybe if they didn't know statistical mechanics very well, they start thinking <laughs> about statistical mechanics or diffusion, things like certain, certain aspects of physics that are ubiquitous in the biological world, but maybe they didn't study it before. And did something like that happen for you? Oh, definitely. So, you know, I, I had been you know, somewhat paying attention to just, you know, what's published in science and nature and stuff and going to a lot of random seminars and things like that, even when I was a grad student. But, you know, especially once I made this leap, I decided, you know, I just really need to make sure I have you know, the equivalent of a good undergraduate, at least education in, in, in biology. So my lunchtime reading for, you know, the first six or nine months or whatever was the gigantic, um, I don't know if you know the Albert's Molecular Biology of the Cell textbook. It's one of these, you know, I think it's about 1100 pages or so, one of these yeah. doorstone yeah. is. So I read it cover to cover <laughs> and took notes actually on like, what, what seems, um, you know, what seems interesting, but also what seems kind of physically hokey that might be interesting to, to like think about from a more uh, you know, physics-y point of view. So I went through like that entire thing. I also like sat in on like a undergraduate immunology course. So yes, I definitely felt that I should brush up on the things I wasn't aware of. And this is also a pretty common thing, like you were saying as well, for people going to biophysics, you know, whatever their background, there's a, there's something lacking. And it definitely takes some some real concerted effort to to address that. I, I, what I, one thing that I often find is that, you know, as a physicist, if you try to read through that book, like molecular biology of the cell, um, you know, you, you immediately, like even on page one or page 10, you, you start asking questions like, wait a minute, how did they know this? Can you deduce this first principles? And sometimes it's true. They don't really, they can't really deduce it from first principles, but sometimes there is some expert in the world of say molecular biology who does know and has thought really super deeply about it from physical principles, but it may not be generally known to all the biologists who are making use of the knowledge. And right. uh, I don't know if you've if encountered that kind of phenomenon. Oh, definitely. So yeah, those two categories, things may not be known or they may be known, but not generally known. And then there's the third category, which is a little bit frustrating where they're known and not even that difficult to, to point out, but it's felt that that doesn't belong in an undergraduate biology textbook. Yeah. Um, it requires, you know, an understanding of statistical mechanics or of, uh, you know, various sorts of things. And it's, it's, you know, instead one takes the route, okay, we're just going to list these phenomena or facts or things that are there. So at, at what point did you feel that you really were a card carrying biophysicist? I think even. In the years that I was a postdoc, I mean, I, if you asked, I would have said I was a biophysicist, but to really kind of internalize that, I think it took even longer than that. Like, so I started here at the, on the faculty at the University of Oregon in 2006, and I continued to do things related to, to membranes and materials that make up membranes. But then, especially after a few years, and this is actually kind of an interesting story in itself, but I, I branched out into can we think about the gut microbiome from a biophysical perspective, mm. uh, which is now like what my group completely does. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun and, and really interesting. And I think it's really, even though that's actually a, an extremely biological topic, that's not often thought about it through the lens of biophysics, 
I feel like kind of really sketching out, okay, here's something where I'm embarking on something biophysical, but really, really new, like not what you know, my postdoc lab did or anything like that. I, I, to me, that is where I can really call myself a biophysicist. Yeah, gut, gut microbiome is, is super trendy. I, I didn't realize that we could make progress on it from a physics point of view. That's really great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's a fascinating topic. It's a really messy topic, by the way. It's, it's one in which there's a ton of stuff out there. There's a lot of stuff that's almost self-contradictory. There's a lot of stuff based on, you know, very indirect premises and very small, small end studies. And it's, it's in some sense a giant mess, but it's also a really fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, you know, the, the reason that I at least feel, and this has actually been a really fruitful um, direction for our group, that you know, there is insight that you can get from a physics perspective is in some sense not, not hard to see because we have this thing inside us, this, this collection of trillions of microbes, this vast community of stuff. And we know just from kind of correlational things that it does a lot of things related to like health and disease. But almost everything that the field in general knows is from these beautiful techniques like DNA sequencing or RNA sequencing that have like no information about like what's the physical organization of the stuff. So, I mean, uh, to, to paint a picture that people might not want painted in their minds, but a lot of what we know comes from taking like fecal samples and then running that through, you know, DNA sequencing machine and figuring out like what are the bacterial species there, or what are their genes present, stuff like that, which is very, very powerful, but you know, it, it just is a pureed sampling of stuff. It doesn't tell you what species are near each other, what things might be moving around, what things might be stationary, all the kind of physical information that, that in any kind of macroscopic ecosystem, we would say is really important to understanding, you know, how it works. So our, our entree into this is sort of making that realization and then saying, okay, well, can we say something about spatial organization of gut microbes? So what my group has been doing is building microscopes that let us look inside the guts of zebrafish, which are a neat model organism that are pretty transparent at young ages, and then actually looking at what is the physical structure of these systems. So it's been pretty fun. Have they already just tried sampling from different regions of the gut and just... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So people have done that, not as much as you might think, because it is actually, even that is, is quite challenging to do. But even when you do that, you have pretty coarse spatial resolution you're not really getting that much of a sense of who's neighboring who and things like getting a sense of like aggregation versus, you know, who's swimming around and stuff like that are, are hard even with, even with those approaches. Right. My, I had read articles claiming that a pretty significant fraction of the calories that are extracted from food by your body are actually used by the microbiome. So, so if, if some qualitative state change happens, in your microbiome, you could potentially either lose or gain weight in a, some macroscopic way. Is, is that, does that sound familiar to you? I've, I've definitely heard that. I don't know enough to say anything kind of quantitative about that, but there's definitely a lot of kind of processing of like nutrients and generation of various like you know, metabolic molecules that, that these gut microbes do. And that seems to be like important, not just to like overall levels of like you know, calories available and things like that, but also, you know, secreting things that work as like neurotransmitters and all kinds of things like that. So this, this processing of food, I mean, people have known that gut microbes are involved in processing food for a long time, but like, we're getting a better sense of like, there's a lot to that and a lot of consequences of that, of that processing. And this idea that the microbes might be changing kind of our steady state 
these sort of set points of things like metabolism. Yeah, that I don't know enough to say anything intelligent about it, but it's a big deal and legitimately so. Yes. Well, you know, I think we could spend the whole podcast talking about, you know, that particular aspect of your research. Yeah. But I, I want to spend time on your book because it, it is it was just recently published, right? So this is uh yes. in yeah, a way you're in a way you're on a virtual book tour now. <laughs> yes. So you gotta you have to you have to pimp your book, so to speak. Exactly. So the yep. book is called So Simple a Beginning, How Four Physical Principles Shape Our Living World. The, the version that I have is a hardcover from Princeton, which is beautiful. I believe these are watercolor illustrations that you yourself made. Yep. Yeah. Some of them are marker and colored pencil, but yeah, they're all things that I made. Yeah. Yep. So if, if, if you have uh, if you're a visual person or you have a kid who's very visual, I, I highly recommend this book because I think it's fascinating once you start reading it and looking at the pictures, it's hard to put down. Well, thank you. So what I wanted to do is on the cover, it says four physical principles. So I I'm imagining that the listeners would like to hear a little bit about, we don't have to give away all the best parts of the book, but I'm sure they would love to hear what those four physical principles are. And then maybe at least a few examples. Well, I should maybe first note that there isn't, um, sort of a canonical set of biophysical principles, you know, different biophysicists would, would probably pick different things. There's probably some overlap, but anyway, like, you know, thinking about, and also like teaching about a really wide range of biophysical topics, I felt that there, that there are some motifs, especially the, these four that I picked that are both really powerful, but also really elegant in organizing our thoughts. And so the first is actually one that I mentioned already, this, this notion of self-assembly. And this is basically the, the idea that the instructions for putting components together are encoded in the components themselves and especially their, their physical properties. So this is one that, you know, isn't unique to biology. I was even giving that example of nanocrystals earlier, but living things make use of this all the time. And, you know, across all scales from like molecules to cells, to even like tissues and, and organs. So to give you an example, and this is one that, that actually have in the introduction of the book itself, and you can actually get the introduction from the publisher website. So check it out. Yeah. We, we take something like um, a soap bubble that everybody has, has you know, blown a soap bubble and, you know, you know, you blow a soap bubble and it's this beautiful sphere of, of soap foam floating around. And, you know, that spherical shape, nobody has to sit there and fashion it into a sphere. It just spontaneously puts itself into that shape. Um, and it turns out that's because of these kind of physical interactions of principles that it wants to minimize the, the surface area of that, of that bubble and the shape that does that, that has the smallest surface area for a given volume is in fact a sphere. Okay. You could say, okay, well, you know, we all know that that's, that's it pretty simple one, but then you can keep going with your soap bubbles and you can actually, you know, try this in your kitchen and blow soap bubbles. So they're all coming together on like a wet cookie sheet or something like that. And if you have like junctions between soap bubbles, you'll find that there's some kind of junctions that, that you can have and some that you will never find. Like you'll never find four soap bubbles that come together like an X. So we're like the boundaries are like an X kind of like, you know, four corners in the Southwest United States. You'll just never see that. And it turns out that that's, again, kind of a physically mediated thing, that that arrangement of having an X is not one that'll minimize the surface area of this thing. Rather, you'll get something that looks more like an H or like an H with bent arms where you have like, you know, 
this is hard to, hard to illustrate just on audio, but two kind of bent arms and like a, a line connecting them. It, it, is, it, it is for the reader. It, it is illustrated in the book. So uh, if you yes, can't, <laughs> yes, it is. If you can't visualize um, what we're saying, uh, you can look in the book. Yes, yes, please do. Anyway, but the point being that there's some arrangements that form and some arrangements that don't form, and so that's what you get with soap bubbles. One thing that's really amazing though is that people have looked at arrangements of cells in various contexts. For example, there are these photoreceptor cells in the compound eye of flies, and you have this arrangement of four cells. And you look at it and it looks exactly like the arrangement that four soap bubbles would have. In other words, it's not an X, it's like this bent H I was trying to describe. So you might think to yourself, hey, maybe the, the cells are just organizing themselves based on these uh, sort of physical interactions into this form. Well, a handful of researchers, this has been kind of noted for a while. And then a couple of researchers went kind of beyond this and looked at mutant flies that have, you know, one, two, three, four, the normal, five, six, or seven photoreceptor cells. And it turns out those have exactly the same uh, arrangements that one, two, three, four, five, six, or seven soap bubbles would have. So it's like it's telling us that you know nature doesn't have to specify the exact position of each of these cells through some complicated uh, chemical encoding of, of position and angle and so on, but rather put these there and rely on physical interactions for these cells to assemble themselves into the proper geometry. So this notion that, you know, nature can kind of place the ingredients there and they'll assemble themselves based on various sorts of physical interactions just comes up all the time. And it's this kind of beautifully all pervasive and, and kind of elegant motif that, that nature makes use of. So that's, that's theme number one, self-assembly. Yeah. You know, you, you spend a fair amount of time later in the book, uh, on, I guess the general, the name of this general subject is, uh, embryology, right? Um, right. Yeah. You know, we all start with as one cell and yet, and, and in the, you know, the DNA in each of our cells is the same. So how do individual cells in our body decide that they're going to become eye cells or bone cells or hair cells? It's really a fascinating question. You know, you start with one primitive machine, but at, which keeps copying itself, but somehow there's differentiation in terms of uh, purpose and structure. So. Yeah. I first learned about this, I believe, in from a paper that Alan Turing wrote where he studied the differential equations, I think for the diffusion of densities of, you know, certain molecules or chemicals that might uh, create a kind of stable pattern. And from that pattern, the individual cells in the embryo could figure out whether they're, you know, in the head, in the part that's supposed to become the head or the part mind. And I'm curious whether that has advanced to the point where we really know how, how the whole thing works. I'll, I'll give you the shorter and longer answer. The, the shorter answer is yes, we've made a huge amount of progress on this and not so much in humans, but in things like the fruit fly, we can really make a quantitative, you know, predictive model of how these kind of patterns of chemical cues lead to, you know, different things being in different locations, the segments of the, of the fly forming where they do, where, where they do, for example. And actually that it's great that you bring that up because that actually gets at Another theme of biophysics and another theme in the book, which is this notion of, as I call it, predictable randomness, that, you know, fundamentally there is kind of a randomness underlying everything. And the most kind of important manifestation of that is something many, but unfortunately not all physicists are aware of, Brownian motion, the idea that every little molecule is jiggling around and that's a manifestation of just temperature and thermal energy all around us. So, 
everything is sort of jiggling around and has this randomness of its, of its positions. But superimposed on that randomness is kind of a statistical predictability. We can say on average where things are, or on average how a cloud of molecules, for example, a cloud of signaling proteins that tell cells what to do, how that diffuses through a landscape and how the, the organism, like an embryo, can like make use of that. So what Turing did, which was just really prescient and just you know, well ahead of its time, is, is realizing, okay, if you have things that can signal to cells or whatever, and those are undergoing these random but predictable processes of, of diffusing through, you can ask, okay, how do these, uh, what kind of patterns can you get? And he did this in a very kind of abstract way of just you know, what are the, the general mathematical kind of structure of these, these things. But now we actually know the identities of a lot of these molecules that are diffusing around and dictating decisions by cells. In a lot of cases, we can actually, using some interesting like fluorescent probes and stuff like that, we can actually watch them and really measure like what are their fields and so on. And so, especially for like the fruit fly, which is this you know, model organism that we've learned a lot from, you can actually write down, okay, what are the, the so-called reaction diffusion equations of this? How can I get things like not just the front of the embryo being different from the back, but how can A interacting with B and B interacting with C and C interacting with D give me like stripes, for example. And then I can actually like measure those stripes and see, okay, these stripes are corresponding to this segmentation and so on. So really just within the last 10 or maybe 15 years, we had these actually quantitative, measurable, predictable pictures of how things like early embryonic development work that are just extremely beautiful and just mind-blowing as well. Given that uh, the underlying thing is, although it's somewhat predictable, it's still random. Are there understood the, the methods of error correction that uh, nature uses? Yes. Yeah. I, I would say that's actually a topic of, of a lot of present day work, especially by like Bill Bialak at Princeton, who's just done gorgeous stuff on this. So you can really ask, okay, given the, the numbers of these molecules and this randomness, how precise could nature be? And you can actually phrase it as, you know, how many bits of information can be encoded by like the early embryo? And how does that define, you know, how sharp your boundaries of one segment or another can be? And we're, we're starting to actually be able to answer those questions and say, okay, given these molecules diffusing around and how many there are and stuff like that, this is the best you could do. This is the best you know, nature could possibly do. Uh, and here's how well, you know, an actual embryo does. And usually that's actually pretty close. So you could really get into the, the information, the information processing of things like embryogenesis in ways that I'm sure would have just blown Alan Turing's mind. <laughs> yeah. It, it, but yeah, he, of course he had an incredible vision, a foresight. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is how it might work. I seem to recall a long time ago, Bialik was studying, it might've been the fly's eye actually, or at least the operation of some kind of eye. And I think he showed also from kind of an information theoretical perspective or even a purely physical perspective, it was close to optimal. Like it can detect, uh, I don't know if it's RI or a fly's eye can detect almost single photons. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a beautiful description of that. So Bialik has a like graduate level biophysics textbook called uh, biophysics searching for principles. It's, it's, a, you'd, you'd really like it. Um, and the, the, it starts off with the question of the eye, what are the fundamental limits on its sensitivity, both from kind of the physics of photons, but these information processing motifs as well. And yeah, it's true. We, we are close to optimal. Yeah. The, the thing, I'm not sure this is your area, but something I'm kind of interested in is, is to what extent quantum coherence is actually used in biological systems and 
to the extent that you think evolution is this super powerful optimizer that's been working for billions of years, you know, it may even start to make use, you know, it starts to make use of anything it can make use of, right. To make the organism more fit. And so I guess there are some claims now that uh, actually quantum coherence plays a role in certain functions of animals. Yeah. So that's definitely not my area and I haven't paid too much attention. I mean, definitely the, the place where this clearly comes in is things like photosynthesis, where there is really one needs quantum mechanics to think about sort of excitations propagating through these systems. You know, I almost have the opposite view. The more, the more I look into biophysics and all these different systems, it's really amazing what you can do with classical mechanics, <laughs> how much, you know, just order and pattern and, and dynamics and stuff that, that, uh, uh, yeah, just sort of classical interactions can give you. Well, I'm, I'm sure the quantum, we'll I'm sure the quantum coherence effects are, are, you know, uh, special cases. I, I, I imagine right, almost, yeah, almost yeah. everything in bio, almost all biological mechanisms are primarily classical, but I think there are at least a few cases, I think maybe navigation of some kind of like carrier pigeon or something. Oh, actually, yeah. Sensing magnetic fields. That's a, that's a, um, fascinating and, uh, very difficult area to explore, but there've been some really nice things on like how, how animals, including humans actually might be sensing magnetic fields. Yeah. So I, I think that's a developing, rapidly developing field. Um, Definitely. But not your specialty. Yeah. No. So coming back to the big principles that in your book, uh, one of them is regulatory circuits. Maybe you could just say a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So what I mean by this is, you know, with, within every cell, you know, you have these wet, squishy building blocks of, you know, DNA and proteins and all these sorts of things. And, you know, they, they assemble themselves into basically computers, so circuits that can respond to their environment and make decisions. For example, I'm a bacterium. I like digesting sugars, but I don't want to make my sugar digesting protein if there aren't any sugars there to digest. So how can I like make these decisions? You know, it turns out you can make them just at the level of molecules of DNA and molecules that interact with DNA. So you can, it's kind of self-assembly again, but self-assembly of actual circuitry and decision-making and things like that. So there's lots of, you know, really beautiful examples of this. In fact, actually just continuing the one I was talking about, you can have things in which, you know, there's, there's a, a gene. So one of the things I spent quite a while on the book is, you know, what is a gene and how can we like have a good physical picture of them and stuff like that. For the moment, I'll just say, you know, some stretch of DNA that's encoding, uh, let's just say some protein that will do something like our, our sugar digesting gene. So you could have something where that stretch of DNA is not going to be read out because something is just physically sitting on it and blocking that readout. But you could have things where that thing that's blocking the DNA perhaps binds to the sugar you're trying to digest. So if that sugar is present, it'll bind to that blocking molecule that won't block the DNA and the DNA will make the enzymes that digest the sugar. So you can have this kind of feedback or sensing of the environment sort of at the level of like molecules that these things can put themselves together into these like regulatory motifs. I'm, I'm always amazed at, you know, these, uh, molecular machines that nature has developed in biology. I mean, there's so many of them and I, I always think, uh, gee, could there be any human in the future that understands all of these things? It seems like you have to specialize, uh, and try to figure out, you know, one particular <laughs> set of mechanisms that work. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so that's a really, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point or a really interesting question. 
So yes and no, because you could almost take the opposite approach. So this idea of regulatory circuits also, you know, comes back to this really fascinating puzzle that especially, you know, with the sequencing of the human genome, like really started to, to weigh on people. How many genes do you have? And, you know, we've sequenced the genome even before fully doing that, we've got the sense that it's actually not that many. You know, as, as you will know, we have something like 20,000 protein coding genes. In other words, 20,000 distinct stretches of DNA uh, among the, all the DNA that we have that encode particular you know, protein machines that, that, that do something. So 20,000, you know, it's kind of a big number. But when you think about, you know, how complex we are and all the wonderful things we do, 20,000 doesn't seem like that big an instruction set. And what's more, it's the same 20,000 genes that are in like your skin cells or your neurons or your eyes or whatever. So, um, or in a worm or a fly. Yeah. Yeah. Like many of them are very similar too. And many of those have, yeah, sort of similar, similar counts of genes. So how do you get this amazing and beautiful complexity from a relatively sparse instruction set? And how do you make those instructions turn on in one cell and not in another and so on? Well, one of the ideas then is this principle of regulatory circuits that you don't need like a, a gene for everything. You need ways of combining these genes into like circuits that then do something. So you get this kind of combinatorial effect from just having a few pieces that then can interact with each other in, in different ways. Kind of like, you know, transistors in a computer chip, they're all more or less the same, but you, they're wired together in different ways to do different tasks. Yeah. You know, when, when I was a kid and I was first learning about molecular biology and they said something like, oh, there are only these 20,000 genes. And I guess they didn't even really know the number at that time, but the, they had some estimates. And I think when the human genome project completed, they had a better estimate of maybe 20,000 or something. And they were surprised at how small, maybe they thought it was a hundred thousand before. But I always thought this is crazy because surely the stuff that at the time they would characterize as junk DNA had to be playing some kind of regulatory role as to, you know, what, what was actually happening with the expression of the genes or how they interact or something. And so, you know, when I actually got into the field of doing some stuff with DNA, I was sure that we would find that, you know, in our group, we build these machine learning predictors of output traits. And, you know, it turns out that pretty good chunks of the DNA that are involved in being able to predict something like the height of an individual or something like that, they're not in coding regions, they're outside of coding regions. And so, and so that idea that there is actually much more complexity than just the specific uh, proteins that are coded for, um, turns out to be realized, but I think most physicists would have guessed that actually, just, just from this, a sense of the numbers that, um. I, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And I've never understood as well, like why this notion of like large swaths of junk DNA ever made it anywhere. Yeah. But it was, it was really the Seems. predominant view for a long time. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why, but it, yeah, you're right. It definitely was. At one point I met James Watson and I asked him about this and, and, and there was the central dogma. So I, so, you know, this question of whether the central dogma really could be at the whole story just seemed to me, even as a kid, very implausible. And I think, and I think now it's understood that there's much more going on than just that. Oh, definitely. But, you know, it's interesting though, that I, I still feel that people really, both in the general public and even to some extent among scientists really cling to a notion that, okay, there's, there's one gene and it has one effect that we can really kind of make a one-to-one -one mapping between like genes and phenotypes. 
And you know, every biologist or biophysicist knows that's not true, but it still, I think, influences the the kind of intuition people have about a lot of things. I mean, going all the way to, you know, the notion of thinking about, you know, genes and these these regulatory circuits and stuff. You know, these are dynamical systems, but we don't introduce like undergraduates to this, for example, even though it's really central to how these things how these things work. Yeah, I, I would say I've encountered firsthand be, being one of the people that work on polygenic prediction, or I should even say not even polygenic, but poly loci <laughs> prediction right, yeah. of complex traits that, yeah, it was very counterintuitive to the vast majority of biologists that the story turns out to be what I think most physicists would have guessed, which is that, you know, there are large numbers of switches controlling all of these complex phenotypes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's actually for that reason, I, I, even though this is, these are things you work on that are actually quite far from what I, what my actual research is, but, but I felt it was really important to actually have a chapter in, in the book on like polygenic traits and what we can and can't tell about them and things like that. And I think this theme that I mentioned before of like predictable randomness, it's an important one to try to get, you know, the public in general to have an appreciation for, because, you know, it, it, it really comes to things like what can and can't we predict? How does the scale with like the number of measurements we might be able to make of something, you know, whether it's a population we're sampling or embryos we're sampling or things like that. And I think it actually is, you know, it's not just elegant and beautiful. It's actually practically important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, I mean, it'll, it'll become even more, you know, to take one very, um, newsworthy kind of case uh, of gene editing, you know, if, if you think that we have good gene editing tools and, uh, there's just one gene that controls something I care a lot about, then it seems pretty straightforward to, you know, make that edit and get what I want. But on the other hand, if you realize, you no, know, I might have to edit a hundred or a thousand different loci. Uh, I have a very different intuition about what's going to happen. This technology becomes uh, widely used. Exactly. And yeah, I think I, I totally agree. And, and you know, there's really not a good sense for many people of the fact that these are, it, there's a very kind of profound, even qualitative difference between something like cystic fibrosis, where it really is one gene and one phenotype. You, know, you have a bad cystic fibrosis transporter gene, cystic fibrosis, a really profound difference between that and some trait like height, where there are, you know, thousands or even yeah, thousands of genes that can influence that trait. Yes. So I, I think, you know, it, it, in, in my own work, it's getting to the point where it, and this is actually a common story that's repeating in all sorts of different areas of science, where it's becoming a story of machine learning, where, you know, you mm -hmm. gather the data, but then to make sense of it, you have to point a machine at it. You have to point a computer at it. <laughs> And the computer makes sense of it, but then the computer doesn't generate a, a story, a narrative that the human brain can really latch onto. The, right. The, the machine learning results as something like, oh, these 6,000 different places scattered all over your chromosomes are the ones that are in some really complicated way controlling what your diabetes risk is. And um, yeah, and this, yeah, this brings up a really interesting, almost philosophical question of like, to what extent should we care about having the the mechanistic picture or the narrative, or should we just say, okay, well, we can do prediction. That's fine and, uh, and sufficient. Yeah. That's actually a tough question to answer. It, it is a huh. tough question, but the question is replicated all over science. So like, you know, you hear, you hear about them coming up with better ways to control plasma during fusion. 
And you find that, oh my God, that, but what they're doing is using some machine learning algorithm that they train to control the plasma or something, or, or even the, the AI that's going to drive your car for you, right? They don't really fully know how it works, but it's been trained to, right? So they can make some statistical statements about how well it works, but uh, exactly. it's, it's different from having a kind of causal uh, narrative story that the human brain can understand. Right. Right. You know, this, this leads to other kind of interesting questions. You know, having the causal narrative story, is it just something that we like because it makes us feel better as humans? Or is it that, you know, having that causal story is what enables kind of the deeper advances that are beyond kind of predicting from the immediate data set? You know, one thing I wonder, for example, coming back actually to the example I was giving at the very beginning for my high school class of like predicting, you know, where a ball rolling down a ramp, predicting where it would land and putting a cup there. You know, you could do that by just making, doing the experiment a whole bunch of times and making a table of where on the ramp I start and where on the floor the, the ball ends and just you know, having some purely predictive phenomenological mapping between my starting point and end, ending point. And, you know, that could work really well. But then you could say, okay, actually knowing, you know, Newton's laws and, and having a deeper sense, that gets us beyond the classroom demonstration to making, you know, a spaceship that goes to the moon. Yeah. So, you know, you can argue. Yeah. I totally agree with you. I, I think it's worth a lot of investment in human time and energy to try to get to that simpler causal story as opposed to just accepting some very complicated yeah. predictor whose, whose guts you don't really understand. And when you, yeah, when you can get to that simple, more kind of traditional physics model of what's happening, then it is super powerful when you can get it. Now, it may be that for, say, understanding the human brain, there is just no such thing, right? That's right. <laughs> yes. such a complex thing going on that there's no simple description. And even the simplest cartoon description involves 10,000 variables or something. So, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we're just going to confront some aspects of science where the latter is true. And in that case, we're going to rely on computers basically to, you know, to give us predictive power. Yeah. That's an interesting time. Yeah. No, it's a great time. I, I, I think there's just an incredible amount of stuff happening in science, which I actually want to discuss yeah. with you uh, more broadly. But let's talk about the fourth physical principle, though, that plays a role in your book, which is scaling. And then after that, we'll broaden out and talk about other things. Sure. Yeah. So, so scaling is just this idea that physical forces depend on size and shape, and they do so in ways that determine, you know, what forms living things can have. And, you know, this, this is perhaps the most intuitively familiar of all of these, these themes. We know, for example, that, you know, little water striders can walk on water, but you can't, <laughs> or that big animals have you know, disproportionately thick bones compared to little animals. So there's this connection between kind of size, shape, physical forces. And this is in some sense, a really old observation. Like actually Galileo wrote some beautiful things about, uh, the necessity of big animals having big bones, but really kind of appreciating that it makes a lot of things in the living world make, make a lot of sense and, and exposes kind of these hidden unities between stuff. So, you know, for like walking on water, for example, ignoring any, you know, theological implications, we have, you know, forces like gravity pulling us down and the force of surface tension, this, this property of all liquids that can keep things from deforming or breaking their, their surface. Both of those depend on the size of the object that's like at a water surface in different ways. And it turns out that the bigger you get, the force of gravity, you know, is disproportionately pulling you down, 
uh, more than the force of surface tension is pulling you up. So there will be some size above which uh, you just can't support yourself from surface tension anymore. And so, you know, if you try it, you just sink in the pool, but the little water strider uh, happily stays on. So the scaling thing just comes up in all kinds of, of stuff. On the subject of scaling, is it true that all life on Earth has cells of approximately the same size? Oh, no, definitely not. So there's, there's a pretty big... Uh, well, the extremes have a lot of variation. In fact, actually, just very recently, this, you know, highlighting that there's still a lot of cool stuff in the world to, to uncover, these bacterial cells were discovered. Bacteria were discovered that have cells that are like millimeters in size breaking the previous record, which was already, I think, around a millimeter or so. So there is a, a huge variety. It's true that the majority, you know, most bacteria or archaea are around a microns, a millionth of a meter, and most uh, cells in you are about 10 times wider than that. But there's not that much of a uniformity. But this notion of scaling does get to a lot of things that are kind of mysterious and actually quite controversial. So there are these claims that Things like metabolism should scale with size in kind of predictable ways. In other words, we've known for a long time that like little creatures like mice have a much faster metabolism. They consume much more energy per day, for example, than big creatures like elephants. There's this nice quote from, I think, Nick Lane that a elephant-sized pile of mice consumes 20 times the, the power of, a, of an elephant. <laughs> um, so we've had this observation for a long time and people have tried to come up with and I, you know, just like I was stating for the walking on water thing, what are the physical forces that would lead to that kind of scaling? And I haven't come up with anything that manages to, to convince everyone of like, what is the origin of this? I seem to recall maybe these results, maybe they're not original to Jeffrey West, but the, so there's a, there's a particle physicist, particle theorist who named Jeff West, who became a biophysicist, kind of a, or a network scaling kind of physicist. And he proposed... I think something related to what you're describing, this would have been in the late eighties, early nineties. And, and I thought his model mechanistic model for the reason for these particular scaling laws had to do with the circulatory system. It did. So he, he's proposed that, or he and coworkers have, have proposed that this particular scaling of metabolism is a consequence of basically the fractal geometry of like circulatory and other networks, the, the way basically pipes branch to other branches and other branches and so on, which actually is the cover illustration of my book, that that explains this metabolic scaling law. So that made a huge splash when it came out, but then a lot of people were very critical of it and pointed out kind of flaws, both in the analysis and potential flaws in the assumptions. And then other people put forth competing theories that similarly got uh, poked at by others. So if you look at any one of these, it does look like an explanation. If you look at the ensemble, it's actually kind of a mess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had heard um, that the whole thing was not, uh, was still somewhat controversial and not settled. Um, yes. I seem to good way call to that, at least in the early versions of this, like, okay, you could say like, uh, there's some kind of self-similar structure of the circulatory system, which is in, in, in a way the same in a mouse as in me. And maybe the terminal sort of minimal size of the smallest capillary diameter of the circulatory system is limited by the cell. And then maybe if there isn't that much variation in the cell size, then you can get some scaling relations from that. And that, that's my vague recollection of the whole thing. It's related to why I asked you about the cell size. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's really fascinating to think about 
But it's also one of these things where, I mean, to, to their credit or even to the credit of the whole field, it's a tricky thing to try to prove in any case, because it's, it's hard to really test these models and really say, okay, how valid are the assumptions that go into them? You know, when I finished writing about this in the book, it did make me a little bit glad that, you know, I am an experimentalist and at the end of the day, I can go into the lab and see, you know, what, what, what can we actually build and test and do? So it's hard to test these notions of, are things set by the, the size of the smallest node or uh, is metabolism related to flow through pipes and, and that kind of thing? I should say though, that, you know, even though it's hard to test these, that may not always be true in the future. So one of the things that's been a really amazing development in kind of biotechnology and biophysics slash bioengineering in general has been what are known as organoids or also like, you know, organs in a vat or, or artificial organs, basically. So things in which you can kind of seed in like stem cells that might lead to, you know, a pancreas or a, an eye or those sorts of things. And they really do start to put themselves together into things that are really beginning to mimic, you know, proper organs and so on. And, you know, that's a fantastic and fascinating field in itself. But I also speculate, I, I wonder that these things are also going to be a way at addressing some of these hard to answer scaling questions, because you might actually have in a lab system organs of different size and shape with different you know, self-assembled vasculatures and so on that might actually let you measure relationships between you know, metabolism and structure in ways that would be just impossible in purely uh, uh, purely natural systems. Yeah, I think if you have these things growing, you know, on your bench, uh, you can probably make some measurements that uh, pin down, you know, what the limiting factors are probably better than you could just by observing an adult mouse or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's done that, but I think that would be a really interesting development probably in the next decade or so. Yeah, so I, I think we've given the the listener a kind of rough idea of what they're going to encounter uh, when they buy your book which I hope they'll do. <laughs> it's fine with me if they check it out from the library too. <laughs> yeah, it's good enough. I'm curious, what, when you, what was your decision like to write the book and who were you really uh, envisioning reading the book? Is it a, a bright high school kid? Is it a scientist from another discipline? What, what were you thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I really do want to reach a wide audience, like you know, as much of the general public as I can. So I intentionally didn't write this. Uh, I mean, I think scientists will enjoy it, but I didn't write it with scientists as the target audience. I also didn't write it as a textbook. So there aren't exercises or equations or, or things like that. I think it would actually be something that I hope you know, high school kids would, would enjoy, especially to get a sense of what's actually out there in contemporary science, which is often very different from what you hear you know, in, a, in, a, in a class. But really, I'm, I'm hoping for just sort of the educated lay public that might be interested in not only the the beauty that the biophysical perspective provides and you know, how you look at at the world, but also you know the intersections between this and things that are really quite practically important, like gene editing and growing organs in a vat and stuff like that. So some of this, and especially some of my thinking about how to present things like this, came out of actually a class that I designed, a, a biophysics for non-science majors class. Uh, that I designed and taught, I think back in 2010 or 11, and I taught a few times. That's one of these courses that are for non-science majors here at the University of Oregon, just satisfies a general general science requirement. And you know, we have a lot of these courses 
And I've actually been involved with various programs, like we have a so-called science literacy program that's really trying to, that has been trying to like re-envision how we do this sort of education. And I thought, you know, that was my kind of first dive into how can I convey this kind of thing to a non-science audience? And it was a really good one because it also really got at the question, what do people find interesting? And what do, what are things that I find interesting that really most people don't? Which is, you know, sometimes a little bit depressing, but it's a, a very kind of eye-opening exercise. Yeah, I can imagine like, you know, a, a kid who's been told, you know, starting in fourth grade that this is a DNA molecule. You know, by the end of it, they're just like, okay, so that's a DNA molecule. What do I care, right? Like if it looked right, right. if it looked differently, how would it, <laughs> how would it affect my life, right? So you can imagine kids losing uh, interest in kinds of things that would fascinate you and me. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you're, I think you're, uh, I, well, when I left Eugene, you had one kid, I think, who's about the same age as my kids. Yep. And so must be nearing the end of his high school career. Is that, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I have two, in fact, and yeah, you're exactly right that the older one is, yeah, I believe the same age as yours that so he's in 11th grade at the moment yeah. and the younger one is in seventh. Yes. Yeah, so I'm just amazed at how much, I don't want to call it busy work. Some of it's actually good learning work, but there's just so much stuff that they have to always be doing for their classes. And I don't remember having to do that much stuff in high school. And, you know, so if I had got found your book in the library, I would have just loved to like, you know, go home and lie in my bed and read <laughs> your book. But it seems like my kids don't have time for anything like that these days. So this is interesting because a lot of people tell me that. I, I don't know if it's a Eugene thing or, or what, but I, I feel like there's less less work in high school here than a lot of people in other places are telling me, which I'm not, which I, I think is a good thing for kids who do have, you know, self-motivation or this general curiosity to do stuff. I, I do. Yeah. I, it does seem like a general trend that there's sort of more busy work and kind of less thoughtful work in a way, but at least there's some regional, regional variation to it. One of the things that I've been a bit struck by with, with his education or like, you know, high school is how you know, he's taken, he, unlike me, he took biology in high school. And it's interesting how non-contemporary it is and, you know, how it, it really does seem like a lot of the biology that would have been taught, you know, decades ago without kind of merging it with advances in like technology or physics or anything like that. Uh, so that's been a little bit sad to see, actually. Not terribly shocking, but see. Yeah. You know, my son is taking AP biology right now, and there's just a tremendous amount of junk that they have to memorize. It reminds me of the story of Feynman going to the library and asking for a map of the cat, you know, <laughs> yeah. he had to memorize the anatomy of a cat. So he goes and asks the librarian at Princeton, uh, do you have a map of the cat? And, um, yeah. you know, it just seems strange that they have to memorize all this stuff when, you know, now we're in an age where you could look it up on your phone or on your laptop, you know, if you needed to know the exact you know, detail for some reason. Um, exactly. I, I completely agree. And it's, it's, it's really unfortunate that, you know, I mean, there's, there's flaws with physics education as well, but um, it's really unfortunate that biology education still is, is largely about memorizing things and not introducing these things like, you know, let's think about these as, you know, dynamical systems and let's actually show that, you know, math is actually useful in these, in these contexts. Yeah. I think it's just because maybe the, the, the teachers that are teaching AP biology aren't, they're not used to thinking of it this way. They're not biophysicists right. anyway. So yeah. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, there, there are efforts here and there, like, I mean, I'm obviously more familiar with like university level things, but there are efforts here and there to, to change that. There's a paper actually, like an education paper that just came out by a group at UCLA that has been making a freshman level, you know, biology as dynamical systems course, which looks you know quite nice actually, but you know, it'll be a while if ever, if this really permeates education as a whole. Yeah. You know, I also, I think it's true that, you know, for us after being through, having gone through an entire physics education, then we can appreciate, oh yes, yes. Let's think of the capillary system as some self-similar branching network or <laughs> yes, let's, let's think about this dynamical system. Like the word dynamical system doesn't mean much to most people, even to some engineers, they wouldn't know what you meant by a dynamical system. So yeah. So of course we have the luxury of already being exquisitely well-trained in something else. And then like thinking about the juicy thing in biology that this, this applies other people don't have that luxury. Yeah. Yeah. And how you, how you bridge that gap is a, is a challenging question. Yeah. Because if um, the kid, if the kid hasn't studied the Newtonian trajectory of the, the ball falling off the table, the analogy to that doesn't mean anything to him. Right. So it's it sounds like you're going to make him learn all the other stuff first and then, and then learn some biology. Right. Well, but you can imagine a world in which, you know, the teaching of biology itself includes, okay, let's, let's think about how to describe like a feedback loop, for example. Um, and you know, if, if you're, if you are learning calculus in high school, which hopefully people do, um, you know, let's have that as, as examples of, um, how we can think of the reactions that govern a cell working. And even if they're simplified examples, introduce this idea that yes, these, these things are actually amenable to quantitative descriptions, which I think is really, you know, alien to a lot of a lot of education. It is. I, I you know, one of the analogies I've used with my kids since they were little, just to teach them about, you know, geometric progressions. And then later on exponentials is just like the story of an amoeba. <laughs> the amoeba is sitting there and it splits and then each of them splits. And then, well, how many amoebas do you have six hours later? Like, uh, that was always like a, a very fun thing to discuss, you know, with my kids, uh, maybe we mm -hmm. didn't find it that fun, but I found it fun. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm curious, actually, with, with your kids in their biology class, you know, they learned about DNA. Did they learn about how like DNA sequencing works? I have to ask, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, the, the other problem is when they become, maybe this is not the case for you and your son, but you know, when they get to a certain age, they didn't really want to talk to dad that much. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. That is getting information volunteered is definitely hard. Th this I was curious. I asked this as a specific question, so I got, I got an answer and I, I'd be curious what the answer is for yours. Cause for mine, yeah, the answer was no. You know, one of the, you know, the most biotechnologically just stunning things of the past couple of decades, the fact that not only can we sequence a human genome, but the cost has gone from $3 billion a genome to like a few hundred dollars. Thanks to, you know, our ability to think of this as a physical object that we can do things to, you know, that doesn't come up at all in high school biology class. Yeah. Which is really sad. Well, you put your finger on the exact thing that finally got me into biology, you know, as a physicist, the, the fact that all that data was becoming available. You know, one thing I will say is that I've looked at my kids' textbooks and the textbooks are much better than when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in tucked into some corner of one of the chapters in book <laughs> is a very beautiful explanation of how gene sequencing, or at least some genes, a particular gene sequencing technology works. But, you know, unless the teacher really makes them, you know, absorb that and test them on it, I can easily imagine the kid not reading it. So 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah. I should I should add, just in fairness, because, you know, people might get the impression we're dumping on biologists, but I often find that physicists are also completely ignorant of, like, you know, the amazing development of gene sequencing and, and what's happened in the last couple of decades. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of my physics colleagues think it's bizarre that I got interested in this, but I, I, I keep explaining mm -hmm. to them, like, you know, we have to pay $10 billion and wait a decade to get some new data at the LHC. Um, whereas, <laughs> you know, this is something that the DNA stuff we learned about already in high school, but despaired of trying to crack the code of how, how do you relate the actual sequence of DNA to the properties of the organism, but now we're actually positioned to, to solve that. Right. Right. Well, that, but also just the, the fact that, you know, we, we made this enormous advance and this, you know, factor of, you know, 10 million in, in the decline in sequencing costs, not by somebody figuring out some, you know, complex biochemical reaction, but by making really interesting, you know, physical tools that push strands of DNA through gels or, you know, detect the charge from adding one nucleotide to the end of a growing strand. So very actually physical things made all this possible. I mean, it's really kind of a triumph of uh, sort of physics broadly defined that we can do all this. It, it definitely is. It's a triumph of uh, physics and uh, some aspects of chemistry. That, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not well known at all. We don't teach our undergrads about it. So. Yeah. And, and in, yeah. in some gene sequencing technologies, lasers play an important role as well. So. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, I'm sure you're aware of like the, the, very new, like nanopore techniques. You know, you're putting a single DNA molecule through a pore and measuring just the changes in conductance from this thing, just blocking ions from going through. Like the most, uh, it's just extraordinary that anybody could get this to work, and yet it does. Yeah, it's probably, arguably, the most impactful nanoscience, right? That. Oh yes, yeah, I would agree. I mean, yeah. Although maybe you could argue photovol photovoltaics or some other things are also super impactful nanoscience, but. But definitely gene sequencing yeah. is, is up there. It's up there, right? Yeah. Hey, let me let me broaden out a little bit to science in general. And and one thing I want to ask you, you know, I'm a theorist, so I, I know nothing about running an experimental <laughs> lab. I'm just curious what what it's like for you, like how much of your time is spent, you know, on grants and managing your lab and, you know, how, how does how do you divide your time? I mean, it's definitely the case that the fraction of time I spend doing what I would call like actual science is, is definitely the minority of my time. You know, a lot, uh, of course goes to teaching, but then even with other things, just, you know, administrative things, working on grant proposals, just talking to students, uh, which I actually really enjoy, but like, on um, just sort of logistics of how do we get this stuff ordered and, and this piece of equipment breaking down and things like that is definitely the, the majority of stuff. So, you know, I, I don't have a great sense of how that differs from, you know, what it was like, you know, 20 or 50 years ago and stuff. But it, it, it is sometimes discouraging the, the, the relatively small fraction of time that gets spent on actually doing science. I, I try to occasionally do some stuff in the lab, which is just much less than I would like because I do actually really enjoy it. On the one hand, so in my own career, I started out as a theorist who would, you know, a lot of my papers are single authors. So I would be sitting there working mm -hmm. on something in my head, you know, in my office or something for long periods of time. But over time, and as I've gotten into genomics-related stuff, I tend to have a bigger and bigger team. And mm -hmm. I find that managing the team, getting them organized to be productive and efficient, it's, it's very similar to my experience with tech startups. And it, it is its own thing. I, I don't mind that mm -hmm. so much. What I do mind is, for the first time, I'm submitting a grant to the NIH. 
And oh, mm-hmm. that is like one of the most painful things I've ever Oh, yes. <laughs> and, oh, I totally agree. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just curious, like, are the people that are good scientists now in laboratory sciences just all, mainly the people who are just really good at, you know, grantsmanship, being able to write up these grants and get them funded and just have the stamina to just keep doing it. It exhausts me just working on one grant proposal. Oh, I mean, overwhelmingly, yes. And I mean, I saw this, especially at Berkeley. I mean, to be a, a PI was being, you know, comes almost a full-time grant writing machine and you rely on being able to attract, uh, you know, postdocs or others and kind of having a hierarchy of stuff. You know, here my lab is small, you know, it's not hierarchical and you know, I'm more connected to the actual data and stuff. But, but if you really want to be a, uh, you know, one of the large uh, or particularly, you know, very successful groups that that's what you are. You're, you're the grant writing machine. I don't offend anybody with that, but it's, I just think it's, you know, more or less true. And it's, it is kind of sad because, you know, these people are, are, are excellent scientists. We've almost, you know, taken away the thing that, that they came to fame for. So we've structured it in an odd way. And I mean, it's kind of related to something that, you know, seems to increasingly affect even like my work. It's very hard to plan kind of in the, in the long term. So you're writing a grant that's like a three year or five year grant. Plus, you know, your odds of getting it are like 10 to 20%. So given all of that stochasticity, you know, it's just really, really hard to make plans for the long term and to take up projects that are really like long-term projects that you expect to have a reasonable chance of doing. It's a very strange system. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think that's something you and I are both interested in is yeah. like, I could pose in a provocative way. I could say how far, for it. <laughs> you know, how just exactly how suboptimal is the system right now for producing great science? You know, like, like how far <laughs> are we from the ideal system? Yeah. Okay. I don't know what the metric is for resistance to the ideal system, how it but feel to you? it feels like we're far and getting worse. And I think, you know, the, the things that bother me and that kind of increasingly bother me. One is what I just said, this issue of like kind of stochasticity or, or short, short-term planning. You just can't really um, plan for the long-term, whether it's in terms of money or people or anything like that. You're making, yeah, you're kind of limited by all this sort of short-term churn. And, and the one way, I guess, around that is to be a, a giant group at Berkeley or something and have, you know, 40 people such that there's always something working out. Uh, and so on average, you're okay, but that leads to a whole kind of factory system in itself. So that stochasticity is, I think, one big thing. The other, I think, and here, you know, I am probably biased by my perspective as a faculty member at a not top tier institution. I mean, I don't mean that as criticism of Oregon because there's some phenomenal people, both faculty and students, but overall, you know, it, it, it it is not in the, the elite, but you know, we, we being the U S has set up this system where we basically just produce lots and lots of graduate students. And first of all, that leads to this again, kind of short term thing. Like we get rid of kind of accumulated skills and knowledge as, as students graduate. And then to make it worse, we don't have a good place for them to graduate too. We kind of overproduce graduate students. It's not that easy for them to find jobs. You can, you know, they do okay, especially because most of them go into like programming and so on. But it's this bizarrely waste, wasteful use of, of really the prime of people's lives. And it doesn't, it doesn't serve them. I mean, some of them, it, it, for some of them, it works out extremely well. But 
often it doesn't serve students well and doesn't serve kind of science in the long term well, as opposed to something where we had kind of more kind of stable, longer term positions for people, even if there's fewer of them. Right. So, I mean, one possibility is you could make the cut much earlier. You could say, okay, only the very best undergraduates are going to be funded to do a PhD at all. But maybe their chances of continuing in the field double or triple. On the other hand, the professors who are not at the elite institutions then don't have a lot of student graduate students around. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think the way you could do something like this is to have, you know, like let's say my group, which on average has you know, four to six, let's call it like five uh, graduate students in it. And, you know, I, I work hard to try to be able to fund that level. But if instead of that, it was, you know, default is there will be like one or maybe two, let's say, kind of NSF funded staff scientist positions, which I should say, like a lot of students especially would love it if these kinds of things existed. And then, you know, one or two, even let's call it one, like graduate student. So a smaller number of these, you know, relatively short-term graduate student positions, but more positions designed to be long-term ones. And the, yeah, that, that I think would be a way to make all this work. And we don't do that. I think, I mean, you know, I'm not a historian of science either, but, you know, we came to this decision decades ago to like put a lot of research into have a lot of research be done at universities with graduate students as a way of just rapidly deploying kind of a research workforce, you know, post-World War II when other kind of options weren't there. Yeah. I, I mean, I think some people who are particularly critical, I think Eric Weinstein is a particular example. I don't know if you know who he is, but yeah, he's extremely critical of our system and, and would point to particular, I think, NSF reports that pointed out that this is what we were going to do. We were basically going to, you know, yes, right, it, right. You know, yeah. And create a very dire job situation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And you can get away with it while you're undergoing exponential growth. Yes. <laughs> so we, we haven't done that um, but once too. that ends. Well we we stopped having exponential growth, I mean, generations ago, right? So Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So So we yeah, we still like plug along with this with this system. It's very bizarre. Yeah. I mean another way of Describing it though is, oh, well, we just let a lot of flowers bloom. We let a lot of people into graduate school. If we have a good system for picking talent, then maybe we, we, you know, we, we are able to get people, people who maybe weren't at the very top at the end of their mm -hmm. undergraduate career, they still have a shot. And the people, as long as they know going in what their odds are of succeeding in a scientific career, then it's quote fair, right? So. So you maybe maybe you're exploiting the youthful idealism of people, but they at least in principle know what they're getting into. Yeah, it, that's a tough one because yeah, to what extent you know you can ask them to be aware, but it's it's really hard to to really be aware of what the structure of all of this is. I agree. I agree, and I also think for a 22 year old to be able to think about you know how much risk they want to take on and what that where they want to be when they're 30, it's hard for a kid that to think that through, you know, they just don't have enough life experience. Yeah. They don't have, yeah, have enough life experience. And also, you know, a lot of the perceptions that they may develop, like many of them, I think do come in at least knowing that, okay, um, getting an academic job is very challenging, but they don't come in knowing things like, you know, how challenging an academic job actually is in terms of, you know, trying to get funding and things like that, or how difficult it is actually to find an industry job that's, you know, largely research-based. Um, that's much harder than people think. Yes. Uh, all of these sort of aspects of it are not well known. And, you know, 
you, I, I could tolerate it more if like, if I thought we were trying to educate people about all these things, but we don't really, cause it's hard to do. So we have this kind of uh, messy situation we currently do. Well, as you know, I'm kind of an iconoclast. So <laughs> I, I have since the beginning of my career been very vocal in educating students that want to go into theoretical physics about what their odds were and mm -hmm. what their likely career path was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. so I, 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 I try to get them, you know, the information that, you know, I would want my own son to have where he embarking on that career. Path. Right. Yeah. I mean, I try to yeah, talk honestly with people. Too. Yeah. But, yeah. but then the, the point we were just making is that even though we do, they're 22, so they're just mm -hmm. optimistic mm -hmm. and idealistic. Nothing bad has ever happened to them. So, <laughs> well, also they, they come in quite understandably with a kind of notion that, you know, surely the system makes sense. Exactly. Right. <laughs> right. They couldn't possibly that, yeah. be a meat and, grinder, right? Right. Yeah. Or that, you know, not even meat grinder, but like, I think for a lot of people, I mean, I, I include myself in this, the realization that, you know, the overall structure hasn't been well thought out. It's just this kind of historical accident in a way. Um, it's kind of a shocking one. That, But that's a shocking discovery just in general in life. You realize our government runs the way it runs, right? It, it, the, even the Supreme Court operates the way it operates, right. not, not the way it You're right, actually, that is a more general lesson, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, I'll tell you something funny. When when we were both in Eugene and our kids were young, I, I would have said, oh, I would love it if my son or daughter really wanted to be a scientist. It would be such a joy. <laughs> but just, just to take an example, my, my son, who's, who's uh, they're both very bright, but you know, my son is, uh, I think could be a scientist. He, he has the right kind of mathematical bent and mm -hmm. could be a physicist. Doesn't seem to be that interested in it. I think he, he would rather, uh, I think he already knows he'd rather like uh, go to wall street or something and make money. <laughs> so, and it's, it's almost a relief for me to not, to not think that even though I was originally envisioning and when I brought them up, I was trying to kind of educate them in that direction, but it's kind of a relief that he doesn't seem hell bent <laughs> on a scientific career. So. Yeah. It's kind of sad to think that though, isn't it? I mean, at least for me, I feel like, I mean, I, I love my job, I should point out, but I think it's gotten, it's definitely not the same even as it was, you know, 15 years ago. Even, uh, so to clarify that, even to be an experimentalist in biophysics has qualitatively changed in the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Or I can be a bit more broad that being a academic researcher, being a, a, a academic faculty member doing research. And how, how has it changed? Well, I think that these issues of, you know, the, the vagaries of, of funding and things like that, and, you know, the kind of global question of, you know, what is, what is the structure of it all? And is it something that is good for those involved have gotten more, more pointed in recent years? Yes, I see. I mean, I, I think the general thing I've heard a lot is just, it's harder and harder to get funding, to keep your lab going. And, yep. <laughs> and I think once it becomes kind of an unpleasant, you know, struggle, right. Day-to-day -day struggle, <laughs> then like, how can you possibly still be excited about science? I mean, of course you can be even more excited about the moments when you get to do science, but, but overall your kind of, I think enthusiasm will have to be impacted by the grind. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I'm kind of glad I'm at, I, I'm, I'm sort of at a point in my career now, you know, having done an administrative job for a while and now I'm coming back to science. Now I'm super invigorated to do science and I don't feel any pressure on myself. Just, just, you know, I'm just doing the research that I don't want to do and until I mm -hmm. you know, retire. So, uh, I feel very lucky to be in this position. Yeah.
And I mean, on, on my end, I've I, I, things have gone really nicely for my lab, even though you know, it's hard to predict the future and so on. I've, I've been really happy with how we've done. And it, it is true that I, I do keep like a little file on my computer. You know, if I run out of all funding, what are really cheap experiments I could do or things I could you know, dabble in myself or whatever? Like what's the, what's the rainy day scenario or something like that? Yeah. It's unfortunate that, that that's what people have to, they have to have that backup plan. Yeah. Great. Well, I've, I've had you on for almost 90 minutes, so I should probably let you go. Are there any final things you want to discuss before we sign off? Not really. I think this has been really great. And yeah, anybody, if anybody does listening to this ends up having questions about biophysics or why it matters or anything like that, you know, I'm easy to find on the internet. So feel free to send me a note. Great. Fantastic. So in the show notes, I'll have a link to your book and your lab webpage and your blog. And it's been great to get back in touch with you, Raghu, and I wish you uh, all, all the best in the future. Thanks. This has been a lot of fun. And thanks again for having me. Great.